Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being with us on the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in while Tom Hartman is on a well-deserved vacation. A friend of mine does technology with the Democratic National Committee. He was a young activist. We met as young activists, and he ended up working for uh, uh, working in technology, making much money, retiring. And he's bottom-up democracy guy. Say, hey, how do we? actually try to have a more progressive future. And he decided the job he would take was use his technology skills. He didn't need the money, but use his technology skills to try to build grassroots tools for the Democratic Party. And he came to my house on Sunday. We were watching a football game. The football game is calling the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but I watch it every year. Uh, actually, I didn't even, I watched the last five minutes. I host people to watch it. He was one of them. But he told me when he came, he says, Jeff, I might have to duck out at some point because I'm on call in case anything happens with Iowa. And we said, ah, of course, there's nothing going to happen in Iowa. They've been doing this a long time. Everything's going to be easy. Gonna be... Sends me a text last night. Says, Jeff, someday I have stories to tell you. And I texted back and said, how about someday is now? How about someday is today? You know what he texted back? Ha ha. Didn't even give me an emoji. Not even any emojis. Just ha-ha. No scoop. No story. Just a ha-ha. Humph. friend of mine asked the question, what is the most barbarous relic? The Iowa caucus, the Electoral College, Senate apportionment, or lifetime appointed Supreme Court judges? The State of the Union. Well, it's all torn up. We also have partial results from Iowa. We do now know, Lamar Alexander told us before, and now we know in more full throat, what the case for re-election of the current president is. And we will talk about that. We will also go through some fact-checking of the State of the Union address to help us with our community fact-checking process. And he gave the Medal of Freedom. The President of the United States gave the Medal of Freedom, which normally, if you looked at the list of Medal of Freedom recipients, there would be folks that even if it required Senate confirmation to be granted the Medal of Freedom, the recipients would have sailed through. Sailed through. It is now fair to say 
the Medal of Freedom recipient has earned the medal. Can we say earned? Whose Senate confirmation of such a thing were required would not sail through. I'm talking, of course, about Rush Limbaugh. I come here not to insult Caesar nor to bury him, but to go through some facts and to also congratulate, to congratulate Right Wing Talk Radio for over the last, oh, let's call it 35 years, winning. For transforming the media landscape of the country, for building the market that Barry Diller pointed out to Rupert Murdoch could be exploited, recognizing that if most media was trying to be somewhat eclectic, trying to appeal to a broad array of human beings, yes, including urban, yes, including rural, yes, including people of color, including Jewish people, including Christian people, And major media had its own mistakes that they could find a more narrow but numerous market of just older white people who profess perhaps to be Christians, the vast majority of whom are Republican voters. And if they just narrowed in on that demographic, that they could do something that nobody else was doing. And they learned that lesson from someone who's now the Medal of Freedom recipient. Let's go through some of the facts that may have earned Rush Limbaugh this distinction. During a series of public appearances, he called the Rush to Excellence Tour from 1989 to 1991. Limbaugh joked about AIDS and suicide, among other subjects, and declared that feminism was established so that unattractive, ugly broads could have easy access to the mainstream. Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. On a short-lived TV show in the 1990s, Limbaugh compared 12-year-old presidential daughter Chelsea Clinton to a dog and sarcastically apologized for having previously called Amy Carter, daughter of President Jimmy Carter, the most unattractive presidential daughter in the history of the country. Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. Limbaugh's history of racist invective includes him saying the NFL all too often looks like a game between the Bloods and the Crips without any weapons and dismissing the suffering of all Native Americans by claiming Holocaust, 90 million Indians, only 4 million left. They all have casinos. What's to complain about? Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. He also has frequently, excuse me, mocked human suffering, ranging from victims of natural disasters to those living in extreme poverty. In October of 2006, when actor Michael J. Fox recorded a series of political ads endorsing candidates in the midterm elections who supported stem cell research, Limbaugh mocked Fox's physical shaking from Parkinson's disease, accused him of exaggerating the effects. He continued, he is moving all around and shaking. It's purely an act. Either he didn't take his medication or he's acting. One of the two. Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. Limbaugh also referred to then-presidential candidate Barack Obama as a African-American and played the mocking song called Barack the Magic Negro. Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. There are many other conspiracy theories that Limbaugh promoted in his career, including one about the death of Clinton White House aide Vince Foster. He also claimed Obama might cancel the 2012 elections or that Obama was born an African colonial or an anti-colonialist. In 2018, he suggested that mass shootings in New Zealand might have been a false flag to smear conservatives. He suggested the people who are shooting up schools more likely vote Democrat when you get right down to it if they vote. He suggested al-Qaeda may have given up Osama bin Laden for the express purpose of making Obama look good. Congratulations, Mr. Limbaugh. And in October 2016, in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape of Trump bragging about sexually assaulting women, Limbaugh came to the Republican nominee's defense declaring if the left ever senses and smells there's no consent and part of the equation, then here come the rape police in a truly dangerous act in 2017. Limbaugh publicly dismissed the safety warnings from government officials about Hurricane Irma. Limbaugh's attacks against the immigrant communities are prolific. In 2019, he said the Democrat Party has imported the third world into this country and they have not assimilated, comparing asylum seekers coming to the U.S. border to the invasion of Normandy. 
Congratulations, Mr. Rush Limbaugh. I take no glee in someone's illness or in anyone's pain, whether I agree with them or disagree with them. In Rush Limbaugh's case, I mourn his life. We got the State of the Union address. We learned, if we didn't have a decent inkling already, the president's case to get four more years. And that case includes an economy that began its upward swing eight years prior, maybe seven years prior to this president becoming in office. I didn't want to say winning the election. He also made the case, and this is the one we've really got to be watchful for, I think. This is the, the moment I noticed most, was when he criticized Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, calling him a socialist. Had Juan Guaido received one of the only bipartisan rounds of applause in the chamber the entire night, the selected replacement for Nicolas Maduro, the socialist, and, of course, socialism in Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro means a particular thing, including oppression. And right after that, right after making the case against the socialist dictator of Venezuela, he switched to health care. And he said, we will not let socialism destroy American health care. That's the case, folks. That's the argument he's going to make. And if you're thinking about viability of candidates that might apply to how you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about language choices, if you're thinking about what you need to do to educate your coworkers, the case will be, and now we know that Iowa results, Bernie Sanders got the most total votes, Pete Buttigieg got the most total delegates, both of them, it's basically a tie. Elizabeth Warren third, Biden in fourth. No reason to believe that those results will change significantly with the remaining quarter, but we don't know. Remaining almost 30%. But we know the argument that Donald Trump is going to make. In 2016, he was a changed candidate. Changed country. Don't have a black president anymore. And then using whatever arguments he could find. He's not particularly ideological. George from WCPT, Ain't Afraid of Me in Chicago, Illinois. Among the many dark and vile and nihilistic aspects of last night's debauchery, one that stood out for me personally was the awarding of the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a serial violator of the nation's drug laws, a man who illegally procured or caused the illegal procurement of over 1,500 doses of Oxycontin for which he had no legal prescription and numerous other drug infractions to go along with that. And to have that metal pinned around his neck was just an abomination. And it struck me watching that and the pictures of it afterwards that he was wearing a decoration above his left ear that has been with him for quite a few years the high-tech hearing device that enables him to hear since he destroyed his normal hearing with his OxyContin addiction. And that decoration will be with him till the day he dies. Yeah. No, I hear you. I don't wish his travails on him. I feel badly that he has lung cancer. My father perished from that, and it's an awful experience. But... Here is a rich, white, right-wing talk show host who did not have to pay the penalty for violating the nation's drug laws because he is a rich, white, right-wing talk show host whose net worth has reliably been reported to be something around $600 million. And unlike people who are going to lose their health, health coverage thanks to Trump and Limbaugh's advocacy of same, he will be able to have any high-tech medical device he needs, and any level of treatment. That's where we are as a nation today. Thank you, George. Appreciate the call. And and let me respond. So I do think at the end, I found myself nodding my head. My disappointment, one of my great disappointments about uh, Limbaugh is that he himself needed forgiveness, but his methodology and ideology was not one 
that was forgiving of people who didn't have the same boots that provided the same straps that he and many of us have been given. To be clear, I don't have those either. (laughs) That said, my own disappointment about him receiving the Medal of Freedom was not because of his worst moments. I hesitate. I've had bad moments. Uh, I've done things I'm ashamed of. Uh, I, I don't want to evaluate someone else more harshly than I would evaluate myself. I want to hesitate in judging someone by their worst moments. I have compassion for someone who suffered from addiction. I wish that that compassion of the man who became a friend of mine had cancer and he was the, ended up being the treasurer of the state of Oregon. His name was Ben Westland and he was a Republican and he got cancer and through his cancer, he became an independent and then eventually a Democrat. And he realized, uh, to hear him tell it, that we needed a set of systems that helped people. We needed a healthcare system. We needed a more compassionate government. Uh, and that impacted his political trajectory. He then, he did, and he recovered from cancer, but then it relapsed and he ended up passing away, but not until he had been elected uh, treasurer of our state. And the way I think about uh, Rush Limbaugh's oxycontin addiction is not, oh, how dare he violate the drug laws. Other people have violated drug laws in this country that I wish weren't locked up in prison for the rest of their lives. Uh, you did make the point about how he had a certain type of privilege to evade punishment for that, but that he didn't acknowledge that privilege and then use some of it to try to benefit others or have some epiphany around how the world should treat other people. That I do critique. But my bigger critique of him receiving the Medal of Freedom is not based on his worst moments. We all have worst moments. Every single person listening has a worst moment or a flaw or something we're not proud of. And that doesn't mean we're not worthy of love or even worthy of praise. But that Rush Limbaugh's best moments, not his nadir, but his his apotheosis, his peak, was something that was eroding democracy, that was dismantling or supporting, providing propaganda to those who would dismantle the middle class, that would deny climate change, and that would vilify those who would try to do something about it, who would insult people of different races, would insult people of different ideologies, that was not only was soft on the biggest problems and really hard on the people, instead of doing the opposite, which is really gripping with the problems we got to face, but trying to love one another. I don't Uh, I I share with you not wanting to uh, kick dirt on anyone and not wanting to revel in anyone's pain, in anyone's pain. Uh, And yet I mourn his life and how it was spent. Welcome back, everybody. We are honored to have on the air with us John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. His most recent book is Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. We're going to talk to him about anything now we do know about Iowa. John, how you doing? Thanks for being here. I'm doing well, and I'm delighted to be with you, my friend. Any new news? I mean, I've been on the radio now for a couple hours, and and I don't know if the last thing I heard, last thing I heard was what seventy one percent of precincts reporting. What do we now know out of Iowa? Anything new? You are such an optimistic man. You think that in two hours the Iowa Democratic Party could count some votes? I don't know. I don't know. No, you're wrong. Right. No, nope, nothing's changed. Okay. It's, we're still at about seventy-one percent. Yeah, or it's all you know. Remember, they were all counted in the precincts themselves. Yeah, but in this tabulation at the Democratic headquarters down south of Des Moines. In looking at the precincts that have not yet counted, to the extent we can know where it's, what's mm-hmm. been counted, what hasn't, is there anything to suggest that the result, how it's shaping up, which is essentially Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg in roughly a tie, with Bernie Sanders probably winning the total number of votes cast and Buttigieg winning by a nose the number of delegates, and Elizabeth Warren coming in third, Biden coming in fourth, and Klobuchar doing a respectable fifth, in the remaining 29% that suggests that that won't hold? There's plenty of opportunity in what's out to see some re, a little bit of reshuffling there. Yep. There is certainly the chance that Bernie Sanders could move into that top position. Yeah. In fact, 
It looks like you've got a lot of urban areas and some places where, yeah, that's within the realm of possibility. And, and the reason um, I ask, in my, in my home state, you know, Portland votes differently than other parts of the state. Not fundamentally differently, but and so very often you see an election result, but ah, Multnomah County hasn't been counted. And so people end up doing their prognostication based on how close things are uh, before Multnomah County is counted. If the Republican is a little bit ahead before Multnomah County is counted, then everybody knows, but it's only a little bit ahead, everybody knows the Democrat's going to win by a healthy margin. But I don't know Iowa well enough, and I definitely don't well, know what's been counted well enough. So you're exactly right to ask those questions. And here's the bottom line. Polk County, which is Des Moines, it's the big, it's the big vote generator. Only 112 of 177 precincts are in there. So they're only at about 63% counted even now. They're below where the statewide average is. So, yes, you could see some real variation there. You've still got seven precincts out in Johnson County, which is the very, very liberal Iowa City County. You could have a real possibility. You know, I mean, remember, we're talking a tiny separation between Buttigieg and Sanders. Yeah, what rides on it? Why do we care so much? I mean, is there going to be a difference of more than a delegate or two? I suspect the primary will be decided by more than a delegate or two. No, here's the interesting thing. You know what it rides on? It's our modern media age, right? Our modern media likes a one-line... Twitter is too verbose for our modern media. Our media wants a one-liner. 140 characters, way too many. Yeah, who won, right? You want want to be able to do it in, like, two words. Buttigieg won, Sanders won. And the interesting thing is, in Iowa, it was really valuable to talk to a journalist on the ground in Iowa yesterday who said, ain't nobody wins. If you get 50% plus one, then you win. You might come in first, but you don't win. And so we're not talking about who's going to be a winner or not. It's like, you get another delegate or two. And I appreciate you bringing up the media because I do think there's been uh, so much ado about what's happening in Iowa. If there really were fraud going on, then I would care a lot about it, too. With a paper record, do you have any concern about that, that there's any nefarious dealings going on, or is it just taking a while to count? Oh, I, I would put it in another ground altogether. Okay. Um, I don't think there's conspiracies. I'm not a big believer in those. Um, I think there's uh, scorching incompetence, you know, literally people who couldn't set up a county fair booth. Um, and I think they they got a bad... Well, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, where, where do you screw well, in the tabletop? I, there's a bunch of things I don't know. You know the tabletop's making sure you show up with the chairs. How do you get it like there? That. I guess you could yeah, but they, use a truck. They got a bad app. They set up a hotline that didn't pick up. They just did a horrible job of managing things as it yeah. all melted down. I mean, this is not to be treated casually. Uh, this was a badly done response to, to a challenge, and it has fostered all sorts of distrust, all sorts of doubt. Um, what I would argue is this. The biggest challenge right now for, this, uh, for the Iowa Democratic Party, which has probably lost the caucuses permanently. I mean, it's, they're, they're probably done as first-in-the-nation status. But their big challenge right now... You think so. That's your own prediction. We can call it here that John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, has said that (laughs) Iowa will no longer be the first state of the union to weigh in on the Democratic or maybe even Republican nominations. That's that's the shot you're calling? Yeah, I am calling that. Yeah, I I, I would be pretty shocked after all this. It's a real mess. And um, and, But here's the important thing is, uh, with that said... They now they still have a deep duty, and their deep duty is to not hold. That sounds dirty. Go ahead. Deep duty. I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. I'm, I'm a child. <laughs> I don't. I'm not proud I of it. For it. I, w- I hope everybody. I, I hope. I hope Sean just deletes what I just said from the podcast, and even just puts me on mute. I am ashamed of myself. Please continue, sir. We have a deep duty. A deep duty. Um, two. Um, Stop holding press conferences where you apologize and whine and stuff like that. And get in there at 24-7 and get a clean final result. They've got the data. All they got to do is check it, tabulate it. Here's the real tragedy of it, Jeff. They had this information, and they put it out. I also agree with that last point you made, and thank you for being with us. 
that had they just said, hey, we we're going to try this app. It was going to be a faster way of doing it. The app didn't really work. We're going to give you the results the way we usually do them, which is hand tabulation. It's going to take a couple days. Calm down. Maybe that would have been a little better. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I think we did learn something. And I think what we did learn is there are at least five candidates who ain't going away in the next couple of days. If Joe Biden comes in a distant fifth, ain't no way that guy leaves before Super Tuesday. And by the way, add Bloomberg as a sixth. And that doesn't even count the Yang gang. Not going away anytime soon. And that means that people who disagree 20% of the time and agree 80% of the time are going to be jostling, are going to be lying next to each other, talking next to each other, communicating, posting on social media, maybe showing up to caucuses, maybe showing up to vote. And we're going to have to figure out how to be together, how to interact. How do we want to do that? What's behavior that you would like to see modeled? What's something you have done? Or what's some behavior that you'd see that you don't want modeled? Do you think we need to call out a little bit and say, hey, let's have a movement that is a little smarter than that, a little more intentional than that? I didn't say nicer. Maybe you don't think it should be nicer. Maybe you think the distinctions are important and nasty memes are a part of trying to be distinct. Aaron from Tacoma, speak your piece. Good, good. I always want to say thank you for filling in for Tom and giving him that much-needed vacation. Just wanted to chime in on the caucus. You've watched it all on mainstream media, MSNBC, CNN. And it all seemed very biased in favor to the mainstream candidates. And yeah, it was in what ways? very interesting, focusing on Mayor Pete, focusing yeah. on Joe Biden. You mean the really coverage? Focus in on that. The coverage, yes. Sure. And so, you know, being here in Washington State, we had a caucus up until this year. It is no longer a caucus state. We're now down to a primary. Yeah. And being involved in the previous caucus with Hillary and Bernie, it was very good community building. And that is something that we lack as a country is community yeah. building, person-to-person interactions, you know, especially in the day and age of technology where everybody just wants to look at your phone, talk on Facebook, and not have eye-to-eye contact. Yeah, I think it sounds and, kind and of Paul, fun. I was talking to my wife. I, I, I now wish, because I don't know if I'll ever have another chance, I now wish at some point in my life I would have spent six months becoming an Iowa citizen so I, I could have participated in a caucus. You know, I don't know. I think I could have gotten a couple of people to come over from a non-viable person to whoever I was supporting. That would have been a fun thing to do or and, walk over myself. Yeah. The, and and, and, and I'll know, say, you could have gone even closer. Go you could have just moved across the bridge to Vancouver. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'd have to go to Iowa, Aaron. What was I thinking? No. (laughs) But I can't now. It's too late. I firmly believe this will probably be the last caucus in general. And is that what the media wanted? Because obviously in the last term, you know, in the last election when it was Bernie and Hillary, they were all against the caucus because Senator Sanders won. No, that's one of the things to remember, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders and my wife, I was a Bernie voter. My wife was a Hillary voter. And she thought caucuses were stupid. And she said, well, yeah, of course, good for Bernie Sanders for caucuses. He's got all this on the ground, on the foot, you know, young people support that can, you know, don't have necessarily to show up to work and they can go up and show up at the caucus. I mean, she had bad things to say, but the bad things to say she had included things that candidates like Bernie Sanders really liked, which is grassroots engagement and person-to-person contact, yep. et cetera. Yeah, and it's very good. And, you know, even though I was a diehard Bernie fan, I ended up voting for Hillary, yeah. you know? You have to do that. And that's the same thing we have to do this time. No matter who wins, we have to go out and vote for him to defeat the most dangerous president in American history, Donald Trump. Aaron, thanks for that word. Appreciate it. David from Canterbury, Connecticut, your turn. Hey, Jefferson, brother. How you doing? It's always good to hear you. Thanks, man. Talk about how we treat each other. It's right in my wheelhouse, Jeff. Yeah. I was a union organizer all my life, and I got a couple knots in my head to remind me of my old age. One of the things I was good at was talking to workers and teaching them, sort of being a teacher. And I think going forward, I'm a staunch Bernie supporter, so is my wife. But going forward, when we talk to each other, we have to, what I say to people is, the Democratic Party, no matter how you feel about it, is our only vessel, our way of changing this country. When you think about it, it's never going to happen with the Republican Party. It couldn't be used as a vehicle or a vessel by working people. It is our vessel. And we're not going to get there overnight. Revolution happens in stages, Jeff. And what I used to always wanted my working folks that I 
talk to to remember was that we can always disagree on strategy, never on principle, but we can disagree on strategy. And I think going forward, we can see now where half the country is progressive, and we're, and we're going to change this party, Jeff. We're definitely going to change this party and its, and, and, and its corruption. And what we're seeing now with the DNC, they can't help themselves, you know, by being corrupted and inviting Bloomberg, changing the rules. It's disgusting, Jeff. What but was you your, what what was we, your we union? We're going to hold on to it. We've got to change that stuff. David, what was your here, union? Jeff. What was your union? I was in New England Healthcare Employees Union, District okay. 1199, a striking union, a fighting union, and a diverse union. Is that an, is that an SEIU affiliate now? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, now we got Mary Kay, what's her name, who's a Biden middle of the road type union leader heading up SEIU, and I totally disagree with her. And I've already put in my call to Washington to her office. You know, please, let's not make the same mistake we made the last time. We take a middle of the rotor and we take a Biden, something like that. It's a mistake, Jeff. It's the same mistake we've made for a long, long time. And at the same time, I also appreciate, David, not only appreciate your service and and your calling, your listening, but also about, you know, kind of how we treat each other. We can disagree on, let's disagree on strategy. Part of why, I mean, this is at home for me, okay? My wife's hero, and I'm not exaggerating, my wife's hero is Hillary Clinton. And my wife's politics on policy, roughly similar to mine. But she makes a compelling case that it matters that this country has never had a woman president. She makes a compelling case. I get that. I voted for Hillary. I voted for Hillary. Right, right. No, no. The abuse, I'll call it abuse because I've seen it. And that includes by people who've supported me for stuff. The abuse she's received by supporters, actually the candidate I voted for in the primary in 2016, has hurt her so much has given her such real pain that it's lasting. How should we deal with that kind of stuff? Like I said, we do this in segments. We do this going forward in convincing people that we're going to change this country by sticking together like you do in the union and, uh, you know, moving the question forward a little bit at a time. It's not going to happen overnight. So imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes and glancing in the mirror you notice those wrinkles and large under eye bags and you rummage through your bag thinking where's my secret weapon and there it is plexiderm you apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom two minutes later you start seeing the under eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes you'll look years younger plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles crow's feet and under eye bags in just minutes it's the valentine's day gift you give yourself Go to triplexiderm.com and enter Voices for half off, 50% off, plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at triplexiderm.com for 50% off, plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at triplexiderm.com. I want to say thanks, everybody, for participating, and including some of the comments we've been receiving uh, online and, should I say, offline. Uh, really want to say thanks to Jennifer, who was listening yesterday, who made the case for Bernie Sanders' viability, made a powerful case for it, and then used uh, an article as evidence, uh, the recording of Donald Trump saying in 2016 that Bernie Sanders was the candidate he didn't want to run against. And then there was some back and forth about that. And I want to share that because I thought it was somewhat elucidating. I think it was 61% of Iowa voters last night in entrance polls said that they were evaluating candidates based on their ability to beat Donald Trump, 37% based on if they liked their policies well enough, and, or you know if they liked their policies best, should we say. The case for Bernie Sanders' viability is a, is a strong one. He has built a historically strong grassroots movement unseen, untold. I mean, Howard Dean initiated some of this. Barack Obama carried it forward. And Bernie Sanders has gone further in massive online donation support. He makes the case for wealth disparities and disrupting oligarchy maybe better than anybody has made in 50 years. Uh, there is another case as well. I just want to offer 
both sides. Not both sides with Charlottesville racists on one side, to be clear, just with different analyses of viability. In 2016, it's pretty apparent Trump was a change candidate. He was trying to change from Obama. Change isn't the word he used. In fact, change was Obama's word. But that's what he was saying. He wanted to mix stuff up. And so was Bernie. Both of them used arguments of the system is rigged. Middle America is getting hosed by bad trade deals. Even both saying Wall Street is hosing you. Those arguments definitely overlapped. It's also fair to say that Trump stole lines from Bernie Sanders. Trump wasn't talking about that stuff on The Apprentice, to be very clear. Bernie's been making that case for decades. In 2020, though, I can't imagine it being different. Those who are saying the viability case is different in 2020 and 2016, I think they have an argument to make, as was made last night at MSNBC, that Bernie earned nearly 50 percent, you know, in the the high 40s percent of Democratic support. And now in polls, he's more like in the 20s. So about half of that support is decided they might Hillary Clinton might not have been their first choice, but. Bernie Sanders might not be their first choice either. So there has been some potential change just on viability. Not saying who you should think would be the best president. But I also want to point out the dynamic. Just let's call this pundit corner. Now, I suspect Donald Trump's argument, his statement of the case, is going to be different in 2020. I think his statement of the case is going to be more like, let's keep the economy and stock market going. And his choice of opponent might have changed since 2016. I could even imagine him fearing Bloomberg the most. To be clear, I am not a Bloomberg nor a Biden supporter in the primary. In fact, my own take is this stuff is pretty hard to predict, that making decisions based on viability primarily, I think, has a lot of risk born into it. I urge the odd notion of just picking the person you think would make the best president. And all that said, of course, I think so many of us are deeply inspired by the Bernie Sanders movement. I want to offer that back and forth on viability, because I know that one of the things we're here to do is arm you for, as Tom says, the water cooler wars and give you uh, information analysis that could be useful to you. Here's another piece of information, by the way. Rush Limbaugh has taken leave because of advanced lung cancer. Uh, Don't know what's going to come of that. Rush Limbaugh had as much impact on the development of the modern right-wing movement as maybe anybody, as maybe anybody, the Koch brothers, Ronald Reagan, there'd be other people who would be up there with him, but as maybe anybody, he, in some respects, saved AM radio. Others would say he did the opposite of that, Uh, made it more financially viable by getting uh, wealthy advertisers to think, hey, wait, I like that guy's message and put money in, even when his shows weren't going very well. But they liked the idea of cutting their own taxes and reducing their regulation. He united, he combined the oligarchs economic message with the borderline racists social message and united the Southern strategy and the tax cut Republicans together using mass media, demonstrated that market could then be exploited by Rupert Murdoch at the suggestion of Barry Diller. And they made Fox News, which has become the most powerful propaganda machine this country has ever seen. I do not cheer at the pain of another human being. I will not dance on someone's grave if they pass. I will, however, also mourn the life of Rush Limbaugh. Chris from Stuyvesant, legendary neighborhood. Go ahead, Chris. How about we do a multi-state, rotating state instead of a single state? Addressing the issue for the handicapped people, obviously, I think should be number one. And then the other one is, you know, again, the wealth inequality and the people who have to work. Why can we not make this into a three-day national holiday? Let's do it nationally for the main vote, too. But especially with this kind of a caucus, a civics thing, name one of these biomattress president days. Let's sacrifice on the altar of liberty, say, for voting for a three-day holiday instead of buying a discount mattress and apply it that way. Chris, thank you so much for calling in. Also want to say, heck yes, plug. I still remember when I was in law school reading an article in Atlantic, pretty sure it was Atlantic, about moving voting to Veterans Day. It wouldn't have to be Veterans Day, but you could find one of these mattress holidays, one of these sort of white sale holidays. And by the way, maybe not an accident that it sounds kind of racist to say white sale, because when you limit voting, it particularly limits people who don't have historic privilege. So yeah, heck yes, appreciate it. Renee. 
Go ahead from St. Louis, Missouri. Jefferson, you look good in that suit, boy. You look good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, my opinion. I think they need to go with Bernie and Elizabeth for president or vice president. I would prefer to see Elizabeth for president. She's very clear on what she wants to do. Bernie has the policies that are absolutely bringing in the young people. Lastly, I am in a terrible situation Uh because Roy Blunt is my senator and I can't get rid of him until the 2012. Until 2022. I hear you. I hear you, Renee. Well, I don't know. We can work on school board races. We can work on changing the system. There's always always good stuff to work with. It's better than going to Canada. But, Renee, thank you so much, and thank you for the compliment. I'm doing my best, Renee. I'm doing my best. You look good. You look good. <laughs> Tom Hartman program. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, uh, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is arriving in bookstores on February 10th. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for the hidden history of voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco at the, for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series on Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Saturday, February 22nd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland and Sunday, March 1st in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Some tweets that we got in. You can tweet at me at Jefferson D. Smith. You can tweet the show at Tom underscore Hartman. From Metropolitan Resistor, Jefferson D. Smith, hope you will stress today the illusionary imagery from last night's State of the Union. Spelled so too. How plenty of people of color, including a centenarian Tuskegee Airman, got applause and pats on the back. But the only official honor was bestowed upon Rush Limbaugh. We will stress it today. And thank you for letting us do it. Also want to say thanks to Carol, who said a bunch of things, including how long before King Donald decides the Washington Post and New York Times are enemies of the state, how long before protesters will be facing an angry National Guard. If one is not frightened by all of this, they are not paying attention. Uh, Also want to say thanks to T-Daddy. Keeping it real, says T-Daddy. T-Daddy's words, not mine. Trying, though. Do you think the GOPs had any confidence that Pence could win this election if Trump was removed? Being this trial is nothing but a power play by Mitch, I think that is the case. I do think that they thought primarily about politics, their own and statewide. If and this is why I talk about the Red Wall and the building of the Red Wall being more important than the election of Donald Trump, that the propaganda enterprise of Fox News, right wing talk radio. Uh, yes, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Yes, the array of drudge reports, etc., Uh, The mechanism that they built is more important for the success of their movement than a single president. But even if you say that, say, well, why don't they just swap that person out and replace someone else? Well, because Donald Trump understood that's who the party was. Remember, there was in 2016 a significant quasi-academic debate about the thesis, quote, the party decides, end quote. Does the party decide? The thesis that typically picked, typically could predict who a primary winner was going to be, which is the party apparatus. You could define the party apparatus in various ways. That would define who the nominee would be for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. There's great gnashing of teeth and analysis about whether Bernie Sanders' uh, unexpected uh, success didn't win but got tons of votes, whether that indicated, well, maybe the party doesn't decide he, didn't, he was not the presumptive nominee, and whether Donald Trump uh, the, clearly was not the presumptive nominee if that demonstrated that the party didn't decide in the Republican Party. I just think about it differently. I think that the party now of the Republican Party is, in fact, the media mechanism, is, in fact, the media machine. It's connected to its funding machine. But, it, but the Chamber of Commerce doesn't run the whole thing. They will run enough, however, that if, you didn't, if, the, if Donald Trump hadn't given the tax cuts, 
if Donald Trump hadn't just pushed for judges that were in the position and had the ideology to overturn environmental legislation, overturn free speech, excuse me, uh, to weaponize free speech, to overturn campaign finance and barring secret money kind of legislation, that uh, if you if he hadn't been in on the joke on that stuff, I think the party would have decided to get rid of him. Uh, but if they had toppled Trump, they would have had a significant primary problem. We also know that. I also think that would have led to an energy problem in the general. So, yeah, I think they stuck with him for politics as well as for anything else. But remember, he's not the head of the snake. He's the rattler. Dave from San Francisco. Especially appreciated the very beginning when you were running through the Limbaugh material, his long history of actually providing information to the public that was not toward liberty, but actually toward intolerance and subjugation. Have you ever paid much attention to old Operation Gladio? No. Well, after World War II, when the Nazis were on the run, there was a rat line that was developed not only by the CIA, but by the corporate industrialists that backed the Nazis. And they put the top Nazis uh, throughout the world into positions of power. Instead of putting them into dark holes where they could hide for decades, they actually put them into positions of power. And Gladio is this ugly uh, situation of where the Nazi gold really ended up and the financing of tolerance after World War II. And uh, there was a book that was written during World War II called Undercover. And it goes through uh, a whole bunch of uh, catchphrases. And when you start listening to Rush Limbaugh's shows, especially from the very beginning, I mean, he still spouts the same uh, Nazi propaganda of the Bund. Uh, Undercover was a, a book about the, the Bund, which was the propaganda wings throughout the, the world. When the Nazis wanted to conquer nations, they would send in propaganda teams to subtly uh, shift the people's will so that they would be willing to accept fascism. And so if you were to find a copy of Undercover, and it's uh, it's something you can still find in yard sales, uh, when you start looking at, at Rush Limbaugh's financial backing, there yeah. were three or four corporations in America. There was Prudential Life Insurance. There was Ford, uh, General Motors. And so the there were vo- corporate vice presidents of those corporations in the 1980s, uh, in the 70s and 80s, when Limbaugh got started, who bought uh, him time, like in a five-year plan, on hundreds of stations at a time. And they knew that he was not going to be able, he was like a loss leader. Uh, I used to sell advertising in the 90s, and he was still $25 a minute. When others, uh, you know, a a gas station was $200 a minute, Rush Limbaugh was $25 a minute because nobody wanted to touch him. And, uh, and but he was bought he he was he had airtime bought in advance five years in advance this 10 is a years hugely in important point there's a hugely important point there is a there's a mythology about limbaugh that somehow it was merely his talent and the appeal of his message that made it work there was significant investment in fact tom and i were having lunch and he said and he told me the story of sean hannity and he said that hannity started out as a sub for uh sub for limbaugh and then you know huge pockets of money stepped in and said, hey, let's make Handy the next guy. And and Tom used an opportunity to say something nice about me and said, well, too bad for you. There aren't a bunch of billionaires. The uh, uh, I don't say that to plug myself. I say that that I have been watching and reading, didn't hadn't read Undercover. But yeah, I read I read Limbaugh's book and know that there were big financiers that stuck with him early on when he when people didn't want to touch him. And when people would go after him for racism, instead of, you know, what happens very often on the left, somebody gets deplatformed, somebody makes a mistake, they, they uh, try to kill whatever they're doing, uh, that they didn't let that happen to Limbaugh. They gave him a couple of decades and eventually helped transform the country. Well, that's right. Yeah, generations have been brought up with this spew, and they take it as normal. When, in fact, back in the 70s and 80s, when he got started, there were people that, that 
they couldn't get rid of him because these uh, these corporate uh, and I'm, I actually wonder if they didn't use Nazi gold to to buy time uh, because the, you know these corporate vice presidents had a a lot of explaining to do where they were getting the money to be able to buy this time five years in advance. Yeah. But it it uh, well, I don't think Prudential Life Insurance needed Nazi gold to have a bunch of money. I think they got insurance premiums, etc. Thank you so much. I want to take some other calls, but I will check out Undercover or at least. I don't want to promise to do it because I don't want to break that promise. Rob from Mesa, Arizona, you are on Free Speech TV. We got to start chanting, lock him up at the rallies. I want to see a candidate, no matter who we get, to um, just tell him he's a liar to his face. It's proven. Um, And even if we don't do that, we need to to chant, lock him up. We need to fight this uh, organized crime party. And that's what they are. And I can prove we can prove that, too, because what, what are they doing on each state level? They're throwing people off the ballots. They're trying to suppress the vote. And that's how organized crime works. They try to cheat and they're just trying to cheat. So we need to have our candidates call them liars to their face and basically uh, uh, have them lock them up. So I'd like to see a candidate come out and basically say, yeah, I'm going to pursue this. We're not going to let this drop because if he's committed a crime and the Department of Justice won't go after him until after he's out of office. Well, once he's out of office, he's fair game. I appreciate it, Rob. I heard a couple things, and thank you for the kind word, and also thanks for engaging. I heard a couple things that you said that I want to pull out. One is that there should be vigor in going after Donald Trump as a Confederates for criminal activity. And the other thing I heard you say is that vigor should include both indictments after the election or indictments after Donald Trump is no longer president. Maybe that's in a year. Maybe that's in five years. And that candidates should talk about that. Absolutely agree there needs to be vigor. Absolutely agree there needs to be accountability in the White House. And if we don't have accountability in the White House, we've got a real problem. I'm going to be mealy-mouthed in my response. I'll just let your statement be the statement. The idea of locking up one's political opponents and talking about locking up one's political opponents, that does seem like the kind of thing bad democracies or non-democracies do. I think if I were asked that question, or if the candidate I liked were asked that question, I think what they would say is, listen, I am not in the business of locking up my political opponents, but this government has to be in the business of holding people accountable for breaking the law. And therefore, if there is indictable behavior, that indictable behavior, and that is determined by a nonpartisanized Department of Justice, then that, the fact that the person was president, the fact that they were excused from the behavior when they were president because of a Department of Justice saying that they couldn't be indicted, that can't be a shield from accountability. I know that's more words and not as fun as chanting lock them up, but at least it's my feelings at the moment, but I hear yours. Julie, Grand Rapids, hello. Hello. How you doing? Good, I'm good today, but a lot of days I'm not so good. I'm having a real tough time not having a nervous breakdown with this administration with McConnell, Pompeo, the whole damn bunch of them are are taking over America. I daily cry and then I'll watch something by Anderson Cooper or I'll read something on Huffington Post that reminds me I've got work to do. We have got to stay busy. Saturday here in Grand Rapids in downtown in our Rosa Parks Circle, We'll have a Black History walking tour. Terrific. Children's painting in the park, and it'll be fully integrated. It's so beautiful to come out in our city and see everybody working together. I know it's not as dire as it seems, but these people are driving me crazy. They are making me physically ill on a daily basis. Yeah, it can be crazy-making, and i here with you. And what a wonderful way to spend the energy to honor the good stuff in the world, to not retreat just to our anger, not merely to yell at the television, but use that energy as strength to fuel the pro-democracy movement. Heck yes! Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. 
This is why you need Home Title Lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Howdy, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for being with us. This is the Tom Hartman program. And Tom will indeed be sharing his book, probably signing stuff, February 15th in Studio City. Also be with Stephanie Miller and Greg Pallast. His book, The War on Voting. Right, going to L.A. Shout out to KPFK. Really, by the way, hugely appreciate the affiliate radio stations and other folks who help carry this program. To all the non-commercial radio stations, all the commercial radio stations, everybody that helps hold up some number of candles so that the progeny of Rush Limbaugh are not merely monotheistic across the firmament. So there is some alternative. And Tom offers a huge share of that alternative. And thank you to everybody who makes that possible. Shout out to my home station back in Portland X-Ray. I miss you. I will be back soon. Uh, and by the way, I, had, I said this on Monday, but I didn't pay it off. I'm going to pay it off now. Tom and I sat down and did a long-form interview. It was about corporate personhood and about the arc of Supreme Court precedent on corporate power that I think is so much more important now that we see the direction of the Supreme Court that we, if you look at George Will, who's no Trump fan, and said, well, Trump's going to have lasting negative impact on the Republican Party. We need judges who will overturn publicly and publicly supported and popularly voted upon items and praised the Lochner era of the last century when the court was throwing out social welfare legislation and very nearly led to the expansion of the court from 9 to 12 under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that that idea, the Nancy McLean idea, that uh, the, well, let's call it the Koch brothers' idea, Nancy McLean calling it out in her book, Democracy in Chains, that the big game since Brown versus Board of Education has been to control the federal judiciary, control Article Three, because it can trump Article One, I use the word on purpose, because the federal courts can trump what Congress does. And yeah, during a couple decades, the federal society was built saying, oh, we need to be strict constructionists and judges shouldn't be activists. What they actually meant was government should not be an activist in order to make people's lives better. And we should use whatever tool we can to limit that. If judges are using the power of the federal government, to try to bend the arc of history towards justice around a woman's right to choose and around desegregating schools, then we've got to hobble judges. If Congress is using its powers to combat climate change, to open up democracy, to protect the middle class, to regulate nefarious conduct by large financial organizations, well, we've got to block that, and we can block that with judges. That's not me talking. That is George Will talking. Understanding the primacy, the importance of the federal judiciary and understanding the movement, so much attention we spend to the occupant of the White House. Like cats with laser beams, he tweets and everybody says, hey, wait, look at that. What happened over there? What happened? Something over there. This has not been a random or scattered movement. This has been an onward, inexorable, step-by-step -step move for 50 years now to be able to trump popularly elected social welfare and environmentally protective legislation. That's the game. And you can do that with the courts, and now they got them. 85% of Trump-appointed judges are Federalist Society members. $250 million has been spent to identify them, vet, and confirm them. There is no financial pool on the other side, on any opposing side. There's not a two-side democratic fight, to be clear. There is a movement that has been better funded than any propaganda movement in the history of the world. It's taken over the country, and now it has taken over the federal judiciary. 
Anyway, Tom and I had a chance to talk about that. Mostly him talking, mostly me asking questions. And I said we did that, but I didn't share where you could find it. You can find it at Democracy Nerd, which is a podcast we do. We do episodes as things come up. You can check it out at xraypod.com. Probably if you Google Democracy Nerd and scroll down, we haven't done that many episodes. We don't promote it much. But I'm thinking some people here might want to listen to that. And there are a couple people that emailed and asked me about it. Also want to put a plug in for Thursday, tomorrow. When I have a chance to be Tom's substitute teacher, I like to not only focus on my frustrations, and to be clear, I feel them, and I know that you do too, and judging by the phone calls that light up the board in front of me, it frustrates you a lot. When you listen to a president of the United States stand in the halls of Congress bashing on illegal aliens and forgetting the words on the Statue of Liberty... I'm sure you get frustrated. I have to imagine at least a couple people yelled at the television. My wife yelled at the television. I listened to my wife. I tried to breathe, but not because I had no feelings about the matter. But we try also to focus on gratitude, to shine a light on the good stuff that's happening. As I've been saying before, and as I'll say lots of times, this is a long game. Take over the federal judiciary took this team 50 years to do it in full. 50 years of absolute step-by-step investment and strategy, year by year, month by month, election by election, appointment by appointment, radio station by radio station, TV network by foundation investment to build the apparatus that now, even if Trump loses, even if we suffer from a recession or a depression at some point and we are reminded, as we were 100 years ago, oh, wait a minute, we better have a government that checks rampant greed. Even if the climate catastrophes that have been happening all over the world finally wake us up and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should pay attention to this. Even then, we could have a Supreme Court that overrules us. Recognize it's going to be a long exercise. And many of the victories we need to win will be at home. Many of the victories we will need to win will be in Mesa, Arizona, and Denver, Colorado, and Tafton, Pennsylvania, and Chicago, Illinois, and Madison, Wisconsin, and San Antonio, Texas, and San Francisco, California, and Portland, Oregon. Women's suffrage did not happen because Congress was ready to do it. It happened because it went state by state by state by state until then it was a movement strong enough that a Congress and the president could not resist it. We've got to think big and also think home and work there. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 